I want to welcome you to the Love First podcast. Thank you for joining us. If you are returning, thank you so much. I appreciate that you were willing to like and subscribe and share because that's why some of you are joining us for the first time. And so I want to welcome you and I want you to know what this is about. The Love First podcast is about catalyzing courageous conversations so that we can love in a revolutionary way. We don't want to just love better. We want the kind of love that changes us and changes the world in which we live. You know, one of the things we've noticed over the last uh, several weeks is that, man, people really found a way to pull together. And, uh, you know, you kind of think about it this way. You know, they told us you're going to have to stay in the house for a little while. We're going to help you in some ways, perhaps with a stimulus check or something like that. We found ourselves celebrating all of our essential workers. We found ourselves walking in the neighborhood, and instead of driving by our neighbors, we actually stopped with social distancing and talked and listened to our neighbors. We, we thought to ourselves, hey, man, I can grocery shop for myself and someone else. Lots of uh, love deposits, people delivering a bag of groceries to the back steps or We found ourselves calling someone on the phone and just checking in, hey, are you okay? Are you really okay? Doesn't it feel good to pull together? But somewhere in the back of our mind, as we begin to imagine emerging from COVID-19, don't you sort of wonder if this is going to remain, if we're going to hang in there together? Today, we're going to ask this question. Why can't we be unified? So thank you for joining me for this conversation. Why can't we be unified? Love first, I know. You know, one of the things that we've noticed, for instance, is governments and private companies have begun to work together in really special ways in order to find a vaccine. We found universities and we found uh, research centers that have found ways to work together that in the past may have been blocked by competition or the desire for grants or even the desire to make money off of the potential outcome. There's nothing wrong with some of those pursuits, but what we've noticed in the past is that rather than helping us move forward, it's actually blocked progress. We like seeing people work together, but in the back of our mind, we're wondering What's going to happen as we emerge? Here in the United States, we realize, well, there's still a presidential election looming in the fall. I've wondered about Britain. You know, when Boris Johnson was in the hospital and his life hung in the COVID-19 balance, even some of his political opponents and political enemies, you know, sent condolences and we're praying for you, Boris. But Boris survived. And now, as of this week, he's back to work. So what's it going to look like in five months when one of those political opponents comes against him? Is he still going to be gracious? Uh, uh, Will they be gracious to him? Oh, we know. We already know that it's difficult in our world to fight against another virus. 
the virus that divides us, the virus that basically finds a way to destroy instead of heal. So today, we're going to approach this question, why can't we be unified? So we're going to take a first step, and I want us to look at it through this lens. Quite often when we are wondering what happened, when we're assessing something negative that has happened, we, are, we find ourselves looking for someone to, to blame, right? So some people have said, okay, well, we're, we're you know, it's, it's some place in China. It's got to be their fault. And someone else says, no, it's our political leaders and the way they approached it. And it is their fault. Then we say, no, 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 no. It's the governors. It's their fault. No, it's the federal government. It's their fault. You know, and, and on and on and on, we're looking for someone to blame. Now, there is a big difference between blame and accountability. There's nothing wrong with holding people accountable for their actions that have caused damage and harm to others. But holding someone accountable requires discipline. It requires legitimate assessment of a situation rather than a knee-jerk reaction to just cast off the blame on someone else. We wonder, how did this COVID-19 get out of control in this way? And it will take years to sort that out. But I wonder if we would sort it out better together. I wonder if rather than blaming, we could begin to assess where we let each other down, where we failed to respond, take responsibility, and find a way to move forward. Now, that sounds like a pipe dream. That sounds nearly impossible, which brings us back to our question. Why can't we be unified? Someone might say, well, I, I, I'm just afraid. I, I'm afraid of the outcome. I'm afraid of what will happen if we uh, assess you know, fault to this person, blame to this person, accountability to this person. Well, sure, we've seen that all go badly, but we've also seen that that can be essential to solving the problem of division, deadly division, in history. So I want to explore this because we have some historical precedent. We have horrific situations that have happened in history. I mean, just in the last hundred plus years, we've been examining in great detail the pandemic that accompanied World War I, the pandemic of 1918-1919. We are also aware of World War II and specifically the Holocaust. When we begin to ask, how do you hold people accountable? The Holocaust is often a place where we go for clues and research. Well, Dr. Doris Bergen, Dr. Doris Bergen, gives some of her observations in a documentary called Theologians Under Hitler. Now, Dr. Bergen is actually uh, the professor at the University of Toronto of Holocaust Studies. It is the only endowed professorship chair in all of Canada on Holocaust studies. She is a world-renowned expert. And she tells a story about doing some teacher training, training teachers to teach the history of the Holocaust. 
And so she had each person in the room participate in an activity, and she named the activity, Who Killed Anne Frank? Now, I know that name Anne Frank is not unfamiliar to you. Uh, depending on when you heard the story of Anne Frank, it could have been published uh, under the title, The Secret Annex, the title, The Diary of a Young Girl, or more famously, The Diary of Anne Frank. Anne Frank was born uh, in 1929. She was born to a Dutch family of Jewish origin. From 1942 to 1944, she was hidden with her family in a secret room until someone tipped off the police. The German stormtroopers came. They uh, arrested her family. She was with family members, deported to Auschwitz first, and then to Bergen-Belsen, where she eventually, in 1945, she dies. Her diary made her story famous around the world. And so Dr. Bergen, in her teacher training, says to everyone in the training, I want you to come forward and out of this box, choose a piece of paper. And on the piece of paper is either a name or a description. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to understand who was complicit in the death of Anne Frank. And then when you pick out your piece of paper, you read it, and then we're going to have people line up in the classroom from the most accountable to the least accountable, the most guilty to the least guilty. Well, some of the names you would imagine are on those slips of paper, Hitler, Himmler, right? Would we not expect those names? But there were others. What about the Dutch neighbors who revealed their hiding place? What about the SS Nazi police? What about the fellow inmate in the concentration camp who wrestled away a crust of bread from the weakened Anne Frank? People looked at their papers. They stared at them. They contemplated they contemplated the Holocaust. They contemplated the death of a young girl. But there were other descriptions, and among them was this description. The Christian pastor who from the pulpit in Nazi Germany preached in such a way that it taught the congregation that what was happening to the Jews was acceptable, that the Jews had it coming. Well, one woman had that slip of paper, and she marched resolutely to the front. And she would not yield that position to anyone, including the other participant who had Hitler's name, Himmler's name. No, she would not yield the position. She held that pastor to the highest accountability because surely someone that knows Christ would understand that they needed to make sure that whatever they did, they did not support that kind of destructive speech, that kind of rhetoric that pushed and categorized a group of people out of the citizenship, out of humanity. 
and turn them into objects of destruction. You see, when we ask the question, why can't we be unified? It's a little bit like asking, why can't we get on top of COVID-19? And someone says, well, uh, some people say, well, it's just a virus like every other virus. Well, you're right. It is a virus. But you do understand the reason we call it novel is because it's not just like every other virus. It's a new strain of a virus. That's why we call it novel. That's why we've had such a hard time with its extremely contagious nature. So we recognize that, yes, in some ways it is a virus like every other virus. And in some ways it's a very unique virus. Some people would say, well, that's because viruses have a tendency to mutate. The same type of virus, but mutating into a new strain. Well, see, when we start talking about what it means to be unified, we have to address what is the virus that creates disunity. Now, before we move on, I want to take a moment and define unity so we can know what we're after, right? Some people, when they think about unity, it means you should support the people I think are smart, right? You should uh, uh, support the college team team I support. Um, You know, you should support the church I support. You should support the political party I support. You know, you ought to like the the businesses I like. You you ought to like to shop at the stores I like to shop at. Well, you understand that that's a little bit more like uniformity, right? What that basically says is one person is going to basically be the influencer and do all the thinking, and all the rest of you are just going to submit to their thinking. That's called assimilation. That says you got to go along to get along. If you have your own thought, don't say it. If you have your own feelings, don't reveal them. But you understand that unity is actually an expression of the coming together of differences, not sameness. Unity means that things that are not the same find a way to come together, to be unified, right? And so when we're talking about unity, we're talking about finding ways for people who are different, who have different thoughts, different imaginations, different ways of going about things, um, people who actually uh, uh, think, for instance, that another sports team is probably as good of a choice as the one you like, someone who imagines that uh, a certain kind of food is actually good when you don't like it, someone who thinks that this donut shop is better than your donut shop, this coffee shop serves better coffee than your coffee shop. You know, unity means that people who like Dunkin' Donuts and people who like Starbucks find a way to come together, Right. Unity says people that are different don't have to lose their differences to be able to come together and do something great together. So the unity we're talking about is a relationship unity. It's a relationship that says we recognize we're different and in that we see the value of each other's humanity. So... Let's study the virus. 
you know that I believe Jesus is right about everything. And so I think he's the right one to guide us through this. So I want us to look at an experience, a couple of experiences in the life of Jesus for us to kind of investigate this virus of division that threatens unity, the virus that has to be addressed in order for us to move together in unity. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to look at a story in Luke, or excuse me, in Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Now, in this story, you have some characters, all right? The three main characters are Jesus, his followers, and his opponents. Those are the three main characters, the people that follow Jesus, the people oppose Jesus, and Jesus. But then there's a fourth character in the story, which is common in the stories of Jesus, and that's someone in need, right? And Jesus meets the people in need, and we see how his followers respond to those experiences, and we see how his opponents respond to those experiences. So in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 14, and this story is actually in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, Jesus um, is going along with his companions, and it says in verse 9 that he goes into their synagogue, right? Uh, this would be like their Jewish church. And they go into Jewish church together, go into the synagogue together, and they find a man there where one of his hands is healthy and one of his hands is not healthy. The way that our English translations say it is his hand was, was shriveled up, okay, right? Unusable. You can imagine that in any time in history, that would be difficult. But in a progressive agrarian society, that could make someone a beggar. Okay? So this man has a shriveled hand. Now, I want you to notice what it says next. Looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So his opponents, which this happens all the time, Instead of looking at a situation and thinking, oh man, let's see if Jesus can help this guy. Wouldn't it be wonderful if our fellow citizen, one of our fellow citizens could get help? Well, why do you think he has a shriveled hand? Who cares? Jesus is here. Maybe he can be healed today. Our number one concern is for our fellow human to see how our fellow human can do better. We're rooting for you, man. Nope. As far as they're concerned, he's just an object. They don't care about how, what happens to him. All they actually care about is what happens to them. If Jesus succeeds in healing this guy, they've got to figure out a way to make it still a bad outcome. Jesus heals the guy. Well, yeah, but he did it on the Sabbath, so that makes it bad. The guy with the shriveled hand might be like, you do not see that this is good? I'm doing better. Nah, who cares? What we care about is that we've got to figure out a way that every good thing Jesus does looks bad. Now, there's a clue in this, in this section, and I want you to see the clue. This is in verse 10, looking for a reason to accuse him. You see, they were actually looking for things that they could turn to the negative. When they observed Jesus... No matter what he did, they looked at it in such a way that they could spin the story for a negative outcome. Somehow, the perfect son of God is a bad human. Somehow, the goodness Jesus does in the synagogue was somehow bad religion. 
the, the, the way that Jesus reaches out to people, whether they are in the center of society and wealthy and, 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 and have all kinds of power, or they are on the margins of society and literally have nothing but the dust around their bodies and the sores that the dogs come and lick. You do realize these are biblical stories and Jesus is in the middle of all of them. So the, the characters in the story, Jesus, his followers, his opponents, and the person in need. Jesus focuses on the person in need. Oh, he addresses his opponents. He teaches his disciples. But Jesus always humanizes the person that's in front of him. Oh, why are they wanting to accuse him? Hmm. Let's move on. I want you to look with me at John chapter 8. We're going to look at another story. Now, this is a very familiar story. In John chapter 8, this is the story of this woman who is caught in the act of adultery. Now, I'm going to actually read John chapter 8. I'm going to begin in verse 2. I'm going to close out in verse 11. But I'm actually going to leave out a verse the first time I read it, and you see if you notice it. Ready? At dawn, Jesus appeared again in the temple courts. All the people were gathered around him, so he sat down, and he began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in the act of adultery. They made her stand before the group, and then they said to Jesus, Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law... Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what do you say? But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, Well, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. Well, at this, those who heard began to, you know, walk away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, she said. Neither do I condemn you, Jesus said. Go now and leave your life of sin. You know, that's one of the most hope-filled uh, stories in all of Scripture. We can see ourselves in this story in a myriad of ways. Sometimes we've been the accusers with the stones. Sometimes we've been the woman caught in, caught in some sin. Uh, we can see ourselves in the story, right? But did you notice the verse I left out? Did you notice I didn't read verse 6? Yes, because see, the story can be read without verse 6. So let's go back to verse 6, because it's in verse 6 that we get a clue as to what's happening. They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Now, I want you to notice that. Did you notice? We read the story, and you can read it without that verse. But the writer of John says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Let me give you a little insight what's happening here. Just like the story in Matthew 12... They don't care about this lady. They have no concern about the lady. They don't care if it turns out well for her or if she dies. They could care 
less. What they care about is somehow making Jesus look bad. And the Bible says they just use the woman and their question as a way to get at Jesus, to have a, as a trap to have a basis for accusing him. Now, you may have noticed, and you might be ahead of me already, you may have noticed that the word accuse is used in both stories, that they wanted to accuse him in Matthew 12. They wanted to accuse him in John 8. I want to tell you how this story has changed my life and my understanding of unity. I was actually studying for a sermon, John chapter 8. I was on an airplane flying home from Detroit, Michigan to Atlanta. On the airplane, I had my study uh, uh, materials laid out on my little tray, and I was translating John 8 from Greek to English. I was doing that so I could hopefully better understand what I was reading. I got to verse 6, and I was just studying along, and I was going word by word, and I was writing the words out in, from Greek into English, and I came across the word for accuse. And the word for accuse is fascinating. It's a word from a root in Greek that would be pronounced kategoreo, a noun form kategoros, or another noun form, categoria. And something immediately triggered in my mind. Categoreo, kategoros, categoria. Category. Category? It's... Is this where category comes from? Well, at that time, uh, planes did not have Wi-Fi. I didn't have a way to look that up. So when I got on, uh, uh, we landed, I got out of my car, and I got on the phone with one of my fellow ministers at our church. And I said, I need your help. He said, where are you? I said, I just left the airport. I'm on my way to the office. He said, what do you need? I said, I need you to look up a word in English. I need you to look up the etymology the historical development of the word category. He said, it can't wait <laughs> till you get to the office. I said, oh, come on, man, please help me, please help me. He's like, all right, all right, all right. So he begins to look it up, and I can hear the pages fluttering around. And he said, uh, category, category. Uh, okay, it comes from a Latin term, and it turns out it comes from the Greek category. I was like, I knew it, I knew it. Our English word category traces its roots to the same word used in Matthew 12 and John 8. It traces its roots to the word for accuse. You see, the way they used the word was that if they could lock Jesus in, to a particular categorization, a categorizing of him, that could lead to dehumanizing him. You see, it's that exact same word that is in the story of his arrest and his trial that led to his crucifixion.
You see, if we pick up the story in Matthew chapter 27, Jesus is before the governor and he was being accused by the chief priests and the elders. That's our word for category. Mark chapter 15, verse 3, the chief priests accused him of many things. So Pilate the governor asked him, aren't you going to answer them of the many things you are being accused of? The same thing in Luke chapter 23, they keep accusing him. In John chapter 18, they keep accusing him. And in fact, Pilate came out and said, what are the charges you're bringing against this man? John 18 and verse 29. And they say, let watch this, ready? If he wasn't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him. What's the category? Criminal. Now we can treat him any way you want. Watch this. Pilate said, well, then take him and judge him by your own law. And they said, we have no right to execute anyone. Now, I want you to watch the chain of complicity. If we can categorize Jesus as a criminal, then we can kill him with impunity. I want you to think about that. Could categorization kill someone? Yes. Yes, categorization killed Jesus. Because you see, Jesus was innocent. He had not committed a crime. Jesus had never committed a sin. In fact, Jesus himself says, if someone's got something on me, bring it forward. But they already knew they didn't. What were they going to say? Here, here, here we go, ready? We're going to execute Jesus because he healed a man with a withered hand. Somebody's going to be like, you're killing a guy for that? We're going to execute Jesus because he is really kind to sinful people and he helps us see the error of our ways. And, you know, and, and when we were going to kill this lady caught in adultery and he made us think about our own sin and we all kind of realized that ah, we're guilty too. So we walked away, but we want to kill him for that. that people are like, what? Well, you see, of course People aren't going to accept that kind of accountability, that kind of assessment, because then you'd have to admit, well, there's no reason to kill him and we can't justify killing him. So we have to categorize him in such a way that we can get people to start mimicking us. Well, you know, he's a drunkard, you know. I mean, well, you know, Jesus, I mean, he hangs out with, you know, tax collectors and sinners. I, I mean, you know, Jesus, I mean, he's the kind of guy that, I mean, if I remember right, he said something like, hey, he's going to tear the temple down. You see, what happens is when we participate in categorization, it makes us complicit in the destruction of others. This happened to the Apostle Paul in the book of Acts as accusations were brought against him. But I want to take this a step further because you see this virus that divides, this virus that negatively, derogatorily categorizes people and makes them valueless, that virus Come straight from Satan. Watch this. 
This is in Revelation chapter 12. We're beginning in verse 9. It specifically says that this is about the devil. This is about Satan that's led the whole world astray. But listen, beginning in verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah. For the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before our God day and night has been hurled down. That word accuser used in that form only one time in the New Testament is a title given to Satan. He's the categor. Satan is the category. Satan is the father of negative categorization. Satan is the father of the one who teaches people how to see nothing good in others. How to talk about them in such a way, name them in such a way, identify them in such a way that there's nothing good about them. And once you determine that there's nothing good about someone, it's kind of like a garage sale. Some things in the garage sale are a priceless family heirloom and other things are sold as junk. In the categorization of those things, that's how Satan teaches us to do humans. That some we idolize and hold them in the highest value and others we throw to the scrap heap of humanity. How does that happen? Well, categorization depends in part on naming. Naming someone. And we use these names, these descriptive terms to exonerate some people while we vilify other people. You see, in the example I gave of the teachers being trained in the history of Anne Frank, everyone would say, well, Hitler's guilty. But they didn't then. And some of those who held Hitler to the highest regard were preachers in the church in Germany who in the same sermon that they elevated the Fuhrer was the same sermon that they threw the Jews to the scrap heap. You see, if we're going to be unified, we've got to understand the power of categoria, the categorization of humans. Now, this is the part of the podcast where I'm going to ask you to think a little bit. When someone calls someone a libtard, don't tell me you haven't heard that. Do you understand what they're doing? You say, oh, we're just joking. I mean, oh, that, that's harmless. Well, back in the late 90s and the early 2000s, when that word was coined and came into usage, it was a combination of the word liberal and the word retard. Now, how does it sound? Now, how does it sound? Especially for those of you who might have a family member who has had some mental or learning challenges. Those of you that are in the profession 
of helping students with learning challenges? Have we not yet learned? Have we not spiritually matured to where we understand how wrong it is to refer to people as a retard? Have we not tried to get that out of our vocabulary? Have we not tried to learn how to be a people that could at least be loving enough and decent enough to not pile hurt on top of people that are already struggling? Yes. Well, then what is the validation of then taking that term and putting it together with liberal, calling a libtard, which you know exactly how we're trying to designate someone? And if you think I'm going to let you off the hook, those of you that call people Trump tards, I'm not letting you off the hook either. It's the same thing. It all comes out of the same well. And it's not the well of godliness. It's not the well of Christianity. It comes from the category. Satan is depending on us to behave this way. But you see, we're drawn to calling people names. We're drawn to it. It feels simple. It feels powerful. It seems to separate the world into the people that are good and the people that are bad, the people that are smart, and the people that are stupid, the people that know what's good for the country and the people that don't. It seems to make it clear for how to vote and how to care and who to listen to and what blog to listen to and what newscast to watch. It feels like the world is all simple again. And Satan says, yes, keep it going. That's it. That's it. That's it. The more disunity, the better, because that leads to destructive categorization. And if we could just repeat the Holocaust a few more times, will have it. That is how Satan thinks. And he is depending on negative categorization to continue his dirty work. You say, oh, Don, you're, you're, you're overstating the case. I mean, that's ridiculous. You know, we learned the lessons of the Holocaust, did we? So talk to me about Rwanda. Talk to me, explain it about how categorization in 91 days led to the brutal murders of nearly a million people starting Easter weekend, 1994. Well, you know, Don, uh, not, not, not all the religious people were bad. What, what, what's our problem here? Why are we all nervous about this? We're not blaming. We're learning how to be accountable. We're not blaming. We're learning how to be accountable. We're learning that when we categorize people negatively, we are doing Satan's evil work. Surely we can do better than that. When we think about emerging from COVID-19, don't we want to see this resilience of the human spirit, the love of neighbor, for the, for the movement forward of people caring about one another? Don't we want that to continue? Isn't that something of value from, from the past that we want to see emerge into the future? And that we don't want to see a presidential election spoil something as beautiful as that. We don't want to see politics around the world and, and all of the scramble for resources resume to where we find ourselves, as the Apostle Paul says to the Galatian church, biting and devouring one another. 
So Jesus says, I'm actually not going to participate in this. You can accuse all you want. You can categorize me all you want. But at the end of the day, what you're going to find is that I am for all of you, even the ones who right now see me as worth nothing but death. In the years that followed the Rwandan genocide, there's been a series of photographers and journalists at the invitation of the Rwandan government that have continued to document the progress at the five-year point, the 10-year point, the 20-year point of a nation that's trying to realize we don't ever want that to happen again. We're not assessing blame, we're taking accountability. One of the most important steps in Germany's emergence from the horrors of the Holocaust was to take accountability for what they had done. You breathe a sigh of relief and you say, boy, I'll tell you what, those people on the other side of the ocean, they really messed up. Man, those Europeans, those people in Africa, boy, they really messed up. Really, really. So we're not going to take accountability for our history of racism in this nation. We're not going to take accountability for our complicity in slavery and Jim Crow and the systematic destruction of people's right to life, right to live, and, and, and the categorizing of people as not being equal. We're not going to own that history of our own. We're not going to name it and call out our own accountability. You see, we're not cast in blame, but we're learning that a unity that includes us all requires an accountability that addresses what leads to the disunity. So what I want us to close with today is to think about it this way. On the surface, you've got the Hitlers and the Himmlers. Below the surface, you've got other people that are as complicit as Hitler and Himmler. For us to address our accountability, rather than scapegoating the people that are the easiest to see, the most public figures, let's just step into our own journey and begin to ask ourselves, how do I categorize people negatively? How do I use names and derogatory statements to put some people in the scrap heap? How do I ignore the teachings of Jesus when I fail at the golden rule and I don't treat others as I would have them treat me? You see, Jesus is right about everything. And he's the one that just simply says, a new command I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. So I want to thank you for joining us today in this first step in understanding how to emerge toward unity. And I look forward to you joining us again. Would you please like, subscribe, and share? And we look forward to seeing you next time.